Welcome to The Public Morality. In just over two weeks from the time of this broadcast, Joe Biden will take the oath as America's 46th president. He does so at an unprecedented time in this country's history. If, as many scholars hold, that a president needs to have a crisis to be considered great, Biden has the potential to be a great president. For the crisis is already at hand, whether he achieves that goal is entirely a different matter. Joining me to discuss the presidency historically is one of the nation's truly prolific intellectuals, Professor Doug Brinkley. He is chair of humanities and professor at Rice University, CNN presidential historian, and the author of seven New York Times bestsellers. And along with Johnny Depp, was nominated for a Grammy for their co-authoring the liner notes to the documentary Gonzo, The Life and Work of Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. We are honored to have him on The Public Morality. Professor Doug Brinkley, welcome to The Public Morality. Well, thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, sir. Uh, Let's begin with um, offering some sort of historical equivalent of the moment, if that's possible. I mean, we're surely will have a new president administration, and, and, and people, some historians have termed it somewhere between a frightened nation, an uncertain nation. Short of being 1861 or 1933, is there a comparable moment in American history? Boy, if you skip those two years, um, this would probably be third in line. Um, It is a very dark 2021 on the political front. Um, Washington, D.C. seems to be dysfunctional. The Republican Party's in disarray. We have a president who's um, um, stirring endless amounts of trouble with conspiracy theories and bogus charges that, um, you know, there, there was electoral misfeasance you know he president trump's heirs unsupported rumors and um the, you know and then the amount of political grandstanding going on i will get through it joe biden's going to get inaugurated but it tells you that um this 2020 election didn't heal the country that, that the divide is still pretty deep and then of course with covid19 it's sort of exciting vaccines on the way but the distribution the equitable distribution of the vaccines is going to be a challenge in the coming months, and uh, we almost need a Marshall Plan to get people inoculated in a in a in an expeditious fashion. Now, calling on your presidential historian expertise, you know I marvel at those who, in the present moment, try to predict what a Biden presidency will look like or what it won't look like, as if the world remains stagnant and. And Abraham Lincoln, in my, in my view, wasn't Abraham Lincoln until April 15th, 1865. And I wondered how you saw that. I agree with that. And, you know, we sometimes in the United States place everything on the soldiers that it's about a president when it's often about the people. I mean, if you're going to deal with an issue like environmental justice or climate change, it's going to take a mass movement, a people's movement um, to sway things. Uh, Biden is, you know, there are some parallels to Richard Nixon's demise, uh, Nixon's enemies list, his appeals to the silent majority, the fact that many of Nixon's top advisors, including Attorney General Mitchell and his, and you know, H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman, on and on, went to prison. And Gerald Ford came in and just seemed to do the big pardon and get out of the Vietnam War. 
he called his memoir for a time to heal. At the time, it, it, it seemed kind of unfair that Nixon got to walk walk um, scot free uh, while all of his his colleagues and cronies went to jail. But now history feels Ford probably did the right thing. Uh, Jimmy Carter came in after Watergate in Vietnam. I mean, his memoir is called Keeping Faith. So there was a six-year period, I'm suggesting, of Ford and Carter where the country tried to calm things down. That might be, that's the messaging Joe Biden's giving. Uh, but I'm afraid um, that Biden has to be careful to not be afraid to speak up and leave a, lead the progressive movement that brought him into the White House because he is confronting a right-wing movement, a McCarthyite movement on the right. And sometimes you have, you know, go head-to-head. The idea that you're going to suddenly, you know, make big infrastructure deals with Mitch McConnell uh, perhaps could become whimsical and elusive. So Biden's got to be willing to, he's appointed a really smart group of people around him, and uh, they're going to have to be willing to fight, not just try to kind of, uh, look for common ground. I just heard in your last answer one part uh, Biden should be one part Joe Ford, one part Jimmy Carter, and one part Edward R. Murrow. So, <laughs> yeah, there you go, something <laughs> like that. He, and I, we got, he's got to have that fighting part to him, like that. And uh, you know, it's important um, that Biden doesn't just feel his go- uh, goal is to somehow make peace with the conservative, you know, right wing movement in America, because you know, the, we, this is a moment of, of the, the, this year with Black Lives Matter and what happened and, and um, you know, with George Floyd in Minnesota. And we're seeing a lot of public getting, gathering. We're on the cusp of a, a big environmental movement on climate change and the like. And I, we're, we're going to have to, I think, ratchet up. You know, the, the public's going to have to feel that they're really engaged. I don't think Biden can just do a middle, you know, a middling job, although I'm, that's what he's going to try out of the gate. Well, I'm, I'm glad you raised that, because my next question, and, and I phrase it from the standpoint of, of America being in a post-Cold War era, but it seems to me that we're, that the country's in this sort of perennial tension, still with some of the ethos of, of, of Roosevelt vision of what government could do, and I would say the Ronald Reagan vision of what government could not do, and I wondered how you saw that. Yes, that's okay. I mean, well, I I think that Biden understandably wants to calm the jitters of the country, and to give him a lot of credit, he ran a very smart, low-key campaign. He never got goaded by Trump. In his long career, Joe Biden has shown an ability to do bipartisan deals. Certainly, when we look at America's roads and tunnels and uh, urban blight um, and dirty water and air, I mean, there's some things we can do together as Americans. And if Biden can find a way to to, uh, work with the Republicans, more power to him. But Barack Obama found out uh, that Mitch McConnell wouldn't do business with him. That shut him down. That might happen again. The Republican Party might just start calling Biden an imposter president, that the election was rigged. And I don't mean every Republican, but you might end up having 50 percent of the Republican Party say we're not doing any business with Joe Biden. What does that mean for Biden? It means he's going to have to find ways to get things done in international affairs. 
he's going to be able to move very quickly. Uh, John Kerry, the climate czar, can go to China and perhaps get China re-engaged in a climate deal. We can rejoin the Paris Accord. We might be able to figure out a, a, um, a, a negotiation with Iran um, in the Middle East. I think there's some things in the in foreign affairs just reassuring our European allies who have been rattled uh, that the United States is still supportive of the European Union and NATO. Things like that Biden's going to do. Um, but I think if it, you know, uh, Barack Obama started having to use executive power in a very strong way because Congress wouldn't uh, cooperate. And I think Biden has to make sure he's not afraid to do that. Uh, the threat of executive power if Congress isn't, it, it does a sit down strike on him. Now, my next question may sound like uh, it's one sort of rooted in retribution, but it's, that's certainly not how I mean it. I was wondering from you, sir, should Congress, as a way to go forward, investigate some of the norm erosion activities of President Trump? And for example, I'm thinking of the 2016 uh, inauguration where the president arguably raised more money than anyone in history, but there seems to be a gap between what was spent and the rest of that money, obviously the tax returns. Are these areas that Congress may wish to codify, or should they just simply say, well, the last president was an aberration. No one has done that prior to him. I'm on your thoughts. It's a, it's a great question. I think time's going to tell. Uh, Georgia's going to matter. The election, if you have two Democratic senators and you know I, I you know what I see coming between now and the inaugural is a uh, this is this will sound a little far out there for listeners, but um, I'm not convinced if the Democrats let's say the Democrats won Georgia and now the Democrats control the Senate, Trump might step down for a week and let uh, Mike Pence be president and then have Pence pardon the entire Trump family. Uh, because I've talked to constitutional scholars, and the idea that Trump can pardon himself and is is not going to hold up in the courts. So Trump's only hope in that regard would be to have Pence, you know, say, you know, um, be president for a week and and maybe go to the inaugural, and Trump gets complete and utter pardon. That would leave Donald Trump's future dependent on what goes on with the New York Southern District, uh, which doesn't fall under the purview of that kind of presidential pardon. But Trump has a big trick up his sleeve here. I can't imagine he would want to go back to Mar-a-Lago with a Democratic Washington in the White House, Congress, and potentially the Senate, willing to start investigating all of the strange activities he's done with the full power of the federal government to look at citizen Trump. And so you're, we're, we're in for some chicanery, some, uh, you know, rope-a-dope. We're in for some peop- uh, some uh, some very odd chess moves that are about to be made. And I think Georgia is the hinge point um, because if, if Republicans hold the Senate, Trump might feel that he's got an insurance policy there and wouldn't do something so drastic as step down and, and let Pence be president for a week or two. But keep that. Remember that I mentioned this to you. Oh, we're going to give you. We're going to give you full credit. And because you raise it, I'm going to take you the next steps. We have to re- answer this part as well. Because in your last answer, and you earlier had talked about uh, Gerald Ford, and the Nixon pardon was a preemptive pardon that was never challenged. So then, I mean, even to 
pardon President Trump and his family, in effect, would be preemptive challenges that that by themselves would have some sort of court challenges. So, <laughs> exactly. But I, that's where Biden's what Biden's aiming to do. If it got to that, would Biden say, "Well, we were going to that we're going to find a way to continue," you know. Uh, to continue to investigate the Trump years, or do you let it all go and move forward? And, and time will only tell. But I, I'm asked a lot, and I used to always say I don't judge presidents really for 25 years till you get a Freedom of Information Act and you can read all the documents. Some presidents, like Harry Truman, you know, left office well low public esteem, but he rises after a period of time. Dwight Eisenhower, they used to say, was kind of out golfing all the time and didn't do any work. But when his papers open, you could see his handwriting on every document imaginable, meaning he was a hands-on president. I usually wait, but I don't with Donald Trump. He is the worst president in American history. I mean, he, he is, you know, used to be James Buchanan. People talk about Warren Harding for corruption, but the just amount of rank corruption and um, public malfeasance and lying that's gone on and the uh, spreading of conspiracy theories, hate-mongering. We never really had a president who purposefully wanted to disunite the country. And so it is a, it's a, been a very dramatic four years that have changed at least my and, and other people's attitude. I think we all need to speak up now. I mean, we can't go on ever again with a character like Donald Trump as president. I mean, we're, we have to start working to be a democracy again and not uh, drift towards this sort of authoritarian uh, goofballism. Uh, and the, re- the reason I asked you uh, about the, the actions uh, going forward is because historically, uh, save for the Warren Commission and however, you, however one feels about that, I mean, the, you, we, if we went to the Library of Congress, we wouldn't find a book authored by Congress that said lessons learned from Vietnam. And there's certainly not a text that says that about the, uh, the, Iraq, the recent Iraq invasion. Do we have the maturity, the democratic maturity, small d, in your view, to, ad- to address the norm erosion without it morphing into, to use your words, partisan chicanery? I don't know if we have that maturity, unfortunately, um, but that is obviously if, what, what we should be able to do. I mean, there are moments we had the church, Frank Church investigations looking at FBI and CIA, you know, excesses under the J. Edgar Hoover, you know, Nixon era. Uh, that was public hearings. Uh, the problem is there with social media today, we seem to be operating on a not just a day-by-day cable news basis, but almost an hour-by-hour, you know, statement, counterstatement. And it's going to be hard to get national moral clarity uh, in this sort of uh, frenetic electronic environment that we find ourselves in uh, there will be some you know there there have been some great blue ribbon commission reports that stand up pretty well the 9-11 commission report was well done but at that point there was a bipartisan interest in really understanding what had occurred i don't think there'll be a bipartisan interest in investigating what went down in the trump years uh, 
I think the the Republican Party will still stand pretty firm against doing that because Trump, even as a disgraced ex-president that was impeached and lost, you know, badly in my view by uh, to Biden, uh, he still controls about let's call it. 30% of the Republican Party that would do anything for him, and it's the populist wing. And I just think Republican senators and representatives are going to be afraid to investigate Trump or to double-cross him or to uh, ask for accountability from him for fear that that's the end of their political careers. Putting on your uh, your hat as a historian, not, not to suggest you've taken it off during this conversation, but as a historian— how concerned are you by the recent revelations that President Trump pressured the Georgia Secretary of State to find enough votes to overturn the election, or that some Senate Republicans and members of the House are opposed to certifying President-elect Joe Biden's electoral college victory? I mean, even though that's a ceremonial act, does this stuff matter in the long run? matters greatly. I mean, because elections are— the cornerstone of our democracy, uh, and the people spoke in 2020. The state legislators have spoken. The Supreme Court has spoken. The electoral college has spoken. Yet some members of Congress are, you know, are disrupting the orderly acceptance of an election result, which is the single most important principle of democratic government. And it's disturbing. And it is, you know, they, you know, somebody that cities Congress. Uh, you know, our rep, these Republican representatives know better, but they're just worried about their own um, political careers. They're, they're the you have members of Congress right now smearing loyal Americans on both parties and, and, you know, of all persuasions. They show a contempt for an electorate that cast its votes not only responsibly were votes cast, but in the greatest record numbers ever. I mean, The big irony of this conversation is one of the few great American triumphs in 2020 because we we botched our response to COVID-19. But we did run a free and fair election in 2020. We avoided outside interference. We didn't have uh, major breakdowns. The system held up. It would should be something we're championing. Instead, we're having to deal with conspiracy theories about it, and it just starts eroding our um, our you know democracy when people are willing to do this. And so I'm I'm concerned that it's gotten this far and it's gotten this out of control. That we're spending our January now waking up every day looking at something else on the news that's going to disgust us. Uh, because there is a right-wing media world out there that simply won't just tell the public Donald Trump lost. Switching gears ever so slightly, the, the, the power of the presidency since um, the ratification of the Constitution has ebbed and flowed. You know, some, sometimes executive is, is stronger, sometimes um, he, uh, historically he has been, has been weaker. Where do you currently see the executive branch in relation to the other branches of government um, in terms of its power? Well, it's it's the big question, you know, and the problem becomes like if it's something you like, let's say Theodore Roosevelt, well, let's say Abraham Lincoln used executive power to emancipate the slaves. Theodore Roosevelt uses executive power to save the Grand Canyon. And there's consensus those were great uses of an executive power and they were big. 
but what happens when the executive power is in the hand of somebody like Donald Trump and it becomes quite frightening? So I think we've given presidents too much power that we have to find a way for Congress and the Senate to learn to behave responsibly and represent the people citizens united and money pouring in and add social media to politics it's a mess out there and it's very hard to sort out i mean it, uh, i think we've been lucky that our judicial branch seems to have of for the most part um it held up um you know immediately after the election it, it did the right thing and was dismissing trump's crazy, crazy lawsuits one after the other and and state after state many of the judges that did that were republican appointees um but I think our congressional legislative branch seems very broken, and the presidency's broken if you have a, a bad operator of uh, uh, somebody who uses the White House for, um, you know, personal gain. And there's got to be some reforms that go on here. I mean, once we settle, we deal with COVID, we're going to have to deal with rebuilding institutions of government after Trump, meaning repair the Justice Department, the State Department, the CIA, Interior, Agriculture, EPA, reassure world allies that we haven't gone um, haywire in the United States, that we're back, that it was just a four-year hiatus. I mean, once Biden does those things, which he will be good at, um, kind of calming the uh, stormy waters, um, we're going to have to step forward and, and look at executive power and how we have new safeguards in place. For example, the fact that we're not quite sure whether Trump can pardon him himself or not, that, you know, we that that's uh, it's sort of up for legal debate. About two thirds of the smart constitutional lawyers say no way he can't. But there's some that say he probably could. We need to know definitively uh, and make it clear that no president's ever going to be allowed to pardon himself. So we're going to have to try to institute some some new um, restraints on executive power. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with renowned historian, author, and uh, commentator, Professor Douglas Brinkley. And based on some of the, the, when I was doing the research to have this conversation with you, should I, should I have said the prolific Professor Douglas Brinkley? Because um, that word comes up a lot in your work. I just. <laughs> I write a lot, and it's my, what I do, you know, I did my doctorate at Georgetown in history, and I've written on a lot of uh, American. Um, presidents and and others. I've written on Henry Ford and Rosa Parks and Cronkite, John Kerry <laughs> and Cronkite and and others. Uh, the Cronkite's interesting because you know when he was, I never when I wrote the book, I kind of you can take a guy like Walter Cronkite for granted, but when he left CBS News in 1981. Journalism had about a 70% approval rating in public polls, meaning reporters were honored figures. Today, journalists are at like 15%. So there's no trusted referee out there like Walter Cronkite anymore to, you know, call balls and strikes. And the Supreme Court is constantly only gets even more politicized. 
And so there's no question in 2021 that we're feeling our our government is um, is warned that it, these the technological changes that have come upon us so fast, some of the medical miracles that save lives, but also creates a, a, a dysfunctional society when we can't keep up with the technology and keep up with how money is being wired and laundered and transferred and outsourced. And um, and so there's a feeling that our, things are unspooling in our country. And it's why we're living in an age of anxiety. A lot of it's not just COVID. It's just the feeling that uh, we've lost the narrative of American democracy. Are you working? The good news is, I mean, uh, yeah, well, the good news, Go I would still say very briefly, is just that the point of history is to remind us that our own times aren't uniquely oppressive. That we've had, as you mentioned earlier, the Civil War and the Great Depression and Vietnam. And we've had troubled times and our country pulls through. Um, so I'm hopeful. But it, I would be lying if I didn't say uh, it's things are... Um, are kind of unglued in January 2021. And I was just going to ask, are you working currently working on any book projects that you want to talk that you want to talk yeah, about? I'm finishing up a book right now, kind of finishing it up um, on Silent Spring Revolution about the 60s and 70s environmental movement, but it also deals with the anti-nuclear movement of, of banning of testing of nuclear bombs in Arizona and Nevada. And the um, and the amount of um, chemicals that were put into the air, and the amount of people that got sick from the downwind of those atomic blasts. Uh, I have characters in my book like Rachel Carson and Coretta Scott King, you know John F. Kennedy and Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. Um, so it's uh, really looking at 1945 to 1964. Um, Jack. Kennedy, I think his greatest moment as president was when he made a deal with Nikita Khrushchev in the summer of 1961 and banned the atmospheric and underwater testing of nuclear weapons because up until that test ban that Kennedy Kennedy brokered, um, we were just blowing up bombs everywhere and the atmosphere was being poisoned and it was starting to even get into the the, the teeth, the bones, the the cell cell systems of humans around the planet. Yeah, I, I would even add. I would add to that that what you just referenced sort of got us on that new path. If you add Kennedy's peace speech at American University, it began a different trajectory in how we saw the Soviet Union that, that led to the SALT negotiations, SALT one, SALT two, and uh, so on and so forth. So I, yeah, that was a great speech Kennedy gave at American and. Uh, he, I'm convinced Kennedy was really aiming for peace. He uh, had survived, as with Khrushchev, they survived that, that Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, uh, we were probably lost a good leader in John F. Kennedy, because by that summer of 63, he had really matured and uh, was determined to kind of peacefully resolve the Cold War. Um, and so anyway, I'm looking at, at that period. I mentioned Coretta Scott King, because people don't realize she was a leading anti-nuclear activist in the 1950s. And that was her private, you know, passion. Uh, and it gets sometimes separated from the civil rights movement because she was with other, uh, another protest movement in the 50s and early 60s. So it's, um, 
it's I'm doing a lot of great historical discovery of that period. But you're right, you know, the salt agreements and the like. And uh, I guess we we're we're now in a world though. I, I my big hope is that I spoke to to John Kerry not too long ago, and as Climate Czar International, if he could come up with an arrangement with China that's meaningful on carbon emissions, on um, energy, if there could ever be a big China-U.S. accord, it could have great positive ripple effects around the world. So I'm hopeful in 2021 on that particular front. Now, my next question feels like I'm I'm, uh, influenced by Brian Lamb of uh, C-SPAN, but I'm curious what was what is or what what is your favorite book? Not the one that sold the most, but your favorite book in terms of the one that you look at the research and the writing and it stretched you in ways that remain memorable. Do you have a book like that? Great question. There, um, I what just jumps to mind. I suppose on every day it might be a little different. I truly enjoyed a book I wrote called The Wilderness Warrior: uh, Theodore Roosevelt and the Crusade for America, because. TR wrote 30, like five books and about 150,000 letters. So for an academic scholar, he's got left all of this writing and he was a really good writer. Whether you agreed with him or not, the prose was, had a, you know, uh, was a little bit dayglo often. So it allowed you to um, write about, I wrote about how he saved national landscapes, how Theodore Roosevelt saved 234 million acres of wild America. And I would go visit some of the places he saved, like the Redwoods, you know, Muir Woods in Northern California, or, you know, go up to Devil's Tower in Wyoming and visit um, Wind Cave in South Dakota. He lived in the Badlands in North Dakota, so I spent time there. The point being, he saved so many places, and I went and visited them. And so my memories of the research for that book, of getting to see all of those special American landscapes, will stay with me forever. It was, you know, a lot of fresh air. Usually when you're writing a book, you're in, a, you know, a rare reading room at a library or something. And, and that book brought me outdoors some. The second, I would say, is I did become the biographer for Rosa Parks, and uh, I got to spend a lot of time with Mrs. Parks uh, in Detroit, in California, in Alabama. And uh, I went with her when she got her congressional gold medal in the wheelchair. Uh, We developed a a friendship. Historians aren't really supposed to do that, but in the sense that I was writing about her, but I just liked her so much, and I caught her at the end of her life, and she, when my wife was and I were having a child, she would call my wife and see how she's doing, and uh, it became a very humanizing relationship. And so I think about her a lot um, as a. And there's dangers of writing about people that you you know. I, I recently this year interviewed Bob Dylan for the New York Times, and uh, I love Dylan's music. I liked him a lot since I was a kid, but. It's hard. I never want to ask some Bob Dylan a, a question that's hard because I admire him too much. And you kind of want, you, you know, you want to create a, a um, bit of a warmth in the relationship. So hey, there's some dangers for a historian to get too close to their subject. It's, it's, it's a peril of contemporary history. On the other hand, if you get interviews of like with Rosa Parks, I made burned a lot of tapes with her. 
that'll be there for other scholars to use. And the same with Bob Dylan, same with Neil Armstrong. I did uh, the official oral history for him for NASA. You know, when you do those with people like that, the, your your work, your archival work, my interviews will end up having a life of their own long after I'm gone. Finally, I want to have, uh, since, since this is your first time on the public rally, I want to have a little fun with you if I could. And, okay. okay, here we go. So what, what I'm going to do, I'm going to name, we're going to name 10 presidents and five um, who traditionally are in the bottom quartile and then five, which would be the Mount Rushmore's plus one. And I just want, I'm going to give you the name and I just want a single sentence about each one. Okay, you ready? <laughs> All right, let's try it. No, I'll give it a whirl. No, we're going to have some fun. We're going to have some fun here. And so, okay. and we're going to start, I'm going to start easy with you because the first president probably, you can only give me a sentence. You ready? William Henry Harrison. War of 1812 hero, um, the Battle of, uh, uh, in Ohio, he's important, about his stand at Fort Meigs, Ohio, but one month as president only died of pneumonia. And you never want to be ranked below William Henry Harrison. I mean, if you're worse than the guy who was only president a month, you're in trouble. Well, some of these guys actually are. Millard Fillmore. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Harrison was a great general. And also, let me just say, when William Henry Harrison's campaign of 1840, that's the he had got a lot of things that entered our language uh, came from old Kinderhook, Martin Van Buren's home where he would sign like a document he read, okay, and now we all use the term okay from that election. And William Henry Harrison started rolling, and he got twine and rope and started a ball rolling from Ohio to D.C., where people would come and add twine to it, and it became a giant ball that made it to Washington. And then the word for alcohol, booze, came out of that year because a man in Philadelphia, Mr. Booze, would throw rallies and if you showed up, you would get free liquor, and they became known as booze rallies. And now the word booze hit our national parlance out of that William Henry Harrison campaign. So, so Millard Fillmore, you got a sentence? That's your sentence? Millard Fillmore, um, 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 president, worst ex-president. <laughs> All right. Being a leader of the Know Nothing Party. All right. Number three, James Buchanan. Buchanan usually considered the worst before Trump because of his do-nothingism leading America into the Civil War, his refusal to see that our country was coming apart at the seams, and he just twiddled his thumbs. Franklin Pierce. <laughs> uh, I told you we're going to have fun here. <laughs> an, interesting, an interesting kind of intellectual figure who was a great friend with with Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, one of our great novelists and all, but he's uh, his, a totally chaotic presidency that achieved nothing. Andrew Johnson. Johnson, uh, one of the club of presidents, he's from Tennessee, and um, once he got impeached, he was so angry, he went back after he left the White House to Tennessee and ran to the U.S. Senate and won died there you know I, i've been to his um, i mean died as a u.s senator yeah no i've been to his uh his i guess for lack of a better word his museum and the the impeachment vote 
is is in under glass there. I'm like, it's not good when part of your museum artifacts are the your impeachment vote. That's just not a good. <laughs> that's not just that. That's the main attraction. <laughs> that, that's when I pull off the road to see. Come on, kids. There's the impeachment document. Uh, yeah, I always like you know worry about presidents. Some presidents that are pretty good but don't have anything. Uh, that's why the Berlin Wall became so important for Cold War presidents. They could put a hunk of the wall in front of their presidential library. Right. Nixon has a hunk of the wall. Yeah, that's what I mean. They all do. They all grab the hunk of the wall and, uh, as, as a Cold War president. And, you know, it gives the Reagan Library did a good job because they refurbished Air Force One out there in Simi Valley. So people come to be photographed on Air Force One, and it really helps with the turnstile at that museum. Okay, now we're going to get to the quickly the Mount the Mount Rushmores plus one George Washington. Well, because he's the first president at the tune, and I think it's Washington stepping down his refusal to power and take a third term, and said, "No, I'm going back to Mount Vernon. Uh, I, you know, I'm not going to. We we have to be different than tyrants and despots." Thomas Jefferson. You know, he never put that he was president on his tombstone in Charlottesville, Virginia. He was prouder of writing the Declaration of Independence and founding UVA. But Jefferson should be remembered for his the Louisiana Purchase, doubling the size of the United States and the, the great real estate deal with Napoleon Bonaparte. Lincoln. Lincoln's everybody's favorite president. He ranks number one because no matter how bad any president has it, in the White House, Lincoln had it worse. Imagine half the country revolting while you're sitting there. And, you know, Virginia left the Union right across the Potomac, and Maryland was a hotbed for secession. But it's Lincoln's eloquence. Uh, he was kind of eternal in the first inaugural and the second inaugural, the Gettysburg Address and the Emancipation. I, I, I was going to give you Theodore Roosevelt, but you've already talked about Roosevelt, so I'm, so I'm going to skip him. I'm going to add one more. We're going to go to his cousin, Franklin. He was my plus one, obviously. FDR, in my mind, perhaps greatest president ever, four terms, got us through the Great Depression and World War II, really reinvented how to, uh, the federal government could help people in need and convince people with things like Social Security that the federal government is your friend, not your enemy. Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan, after fought polarizing president because of his uh, conservative ideology, but after he was shot only a couple months in office, uh, started really having a vision of making the, um, of thawing the Cold War with the Soviet Union, Gorbachev and Glasnost and Perestroika. Uh, but there's a record of to, to admire of the diplomacy between Reagan and Gorbachev of reducing um, the world of nuclear weapons and, and creating a friendship between those two countries. I have two guys that have uh, that, that have always fascinated me. I think largely because they served back to back. One was a giant in domestic, the other was a giant in foreign policy, and they both end tragically. And, and that would be uh, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon. How do you see them? I'm just... Um. Lyndon Johnson's Great Society has so much good Medicaid and Medicare, you know, wild hiking trails and wild and scenic rivers, national public radio and PBS. I was going to say, get, uh, NP, get NPR in there, please. 
NPR. I mean, you, there's a lot I, you could say great about about Johnson's domestic agenda, but Vietnam is the big albatross, and uh, it was a foolish war. He got us in it, and um, you know his civil rights acts are heroic. Not only Lincoln kind of equals LBJ in that particular regard, but um, in the end, uh, a flawed giant. And 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 I, I threw Nixon in there. You want? Uh, Nixon's surprising a, um, um, you know, in the sense that dark personality, the tapes that he kept hurt him, filled with uh, bigotry and anti-Semitism, but was a pragmatic political pro who knew how to do things like the breakthrough to go to China in 1972 or to triangulate, if you'd like, with the Democrats and end up creating the Environmental Protection Agency and then Endangered Species Act and Clean Clean Air Acts and the like, but a, um, a low-ranked president. Uh, it's a character matters in the White House, and Nixon had very very low character. Professor Doug Brinkley, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on the public. Hey man, it's a lot of fun. The public morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron B Y R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, We may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.